Well, good morning, Warehouse Church. So good to be back with you this Sunday morning. Uh, I appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to go and do a wedding in uh, warm and sunny Florida. Uh, I got to tell you, it was like 86 degrees when we left Florida. and We got off the plane in Huntington. It was 24 degrees, and it smacked us right in the face. And we're like, oh, welcome home. <laughs> So it was cold, but uh, it's so good to be back, and I'm so appreciative of Clayton and for sharing with us last week and doing a great job of helping us to remember uh, that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for us to receive salvation. I hope that that challenged you, and, uh, and I know that uh, I listened. He did a great job sharing that with us. And so we continue today uh, our journey through the book of Mark. And uh, man, we've covered a lot of ground and we are uh, getting closer to Easter. And so in the story, we're getting closer to Easter and Mark's telling of Jesus um, jumping on the cross for our behalf and then rising from the dead. And so uh, it's just getting so close. And today uh, we're going to find ourselves looking at an odd story uh, about a fig tree. And it's a story about Jesus and this fig tree, and it's a story that has um, created a lot of conversation among biblical scholars for hundreds of years. And, uh, and this story of the fig tree is wrapped around the account of the Jesus cleansing the temple. And uh, what we discover uh, is that these two stories are really connected. That they're not two separate stories, but that they're one story connected together. And that's really important for you to remember as we jump into this this morning. Now, just to kind of give you some context before we jump in, uh, in the first uh, chapter, in Mark chapter 11, where we're going to be hanging out, in the first 10 verses, we see Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And, uh, and people were waving palms and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, as Jesus enters the city on a donkey. It's what we typically call Palm Sunday. Uh, and so we're a little ahead uh, on Easter week. This is the beginning of Holy Week. And, uh, and the story that we're going to read today starts right after that. And uh, so Jesus has left Bethany uh, and uh, traveled a couple miles. He's come into Jerusalem. He's ridden in on the donkey. People have yelled out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They think of him as a king. And uh, at the end of that scene, uh, we see in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, we see these interesting words. And, uh, and if you just blow by it, like you get caught up in the whole uh, Palm Sunday story that you'll miss, verse 11. But here's what it says. After the people were yelling, Hosanna in the highest, uh, verse 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And this is kind of a weird passage, right? In the end, uh, tail end of Palm Sunday, Mark tells or makes a point to say that Jesus went into the temple. He just kind of looks around. And he's doing a little recon, checking it out, seeing what's going on. And then it says he leaves. And he grabs the disciples and they go back to Bethany where they're staying again, about two miles away, a little bit of a walk. And so uh, he goes, he checks out the temple and he leaves. And so this is where we're going to pick up today the rest of the story. Like why? Why did Jesus go into the temple? What was he looking for? Why was he there? And so let's see what happens starting in verse 12. So uh, you can read along on the screen. You can read along in the Bible app. You can read along in your Bibles. But let's start with verse 12 and see what happens next in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, verse 12. It says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, so they've gone back to Bethany where they're staying, now they're leaving Bethany to go back to Jerusalem. It says, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. 
When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, verse 15, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 18, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill them, kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the, out of the city, and in the morning they went as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. So they've left Jerusalem back in Bethany. It's the next day. They're leaving Bethany again, and there's that fig tree, and it's dead. Verse twenty one. Peter remembered and said to Jesus. Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your sins. And so as we see this happening and unfolding, we see this fig tree. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. But before we do, let's pray and let's invite the Lord to, uh, and the Holy Spirit to be with us. Father God, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you that we get to jump into it. God, we get to, to explore and think about the fig tree and what was going on and why it's so important. And so, Father, my prayer today is that you would remove the scales from our eyes. God, you'd unplug our ears and you would soften our hearts today so that we could see, hear, and know exactly what it is that you have for us. Because, Lord, I believe with all of my heart that you have something for every single person in this room today. I love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us in the many ways that you do. In your name we pray, amen. So a friend uh, tells a story of uh, how every summer his family would go to Kansas City to visit some friends and their, their friends in their home, they had this bowl of pears on their coffee table in the living room. And, and if you look closely at that bowl of pears, you would see teeth marks on almost all of the pears. And a friend says that a few years earlier, their youngest son, who was hungry for the pears, would go to the table every time he saw it, and he would pick up, and he would try and eat one of the pears on the coffee table. And, and they looked good to him, and they looked satisfying to him. And now he can tell you at his age now, the, the bull boy could tell you that even though they looked real, the pears were fake. But when he was young, he just couldn't grasp the idea that these pears were fake, and so he would try and eat every one of them. And that's what Jesus saw when he entered the temple on Palm Sunday. He saw something that looked good. He saw something that looked alive, but it wasn't. At least it wasn't alive to God. It was like the, freak, the fig tree. It was full of leaf, but with no fruit. It was like the pears. They looked real and ready to eat, but they were fake and tasteless. 
And so our story today is all about this. It's all about bearing fruit and what happens when we don't bear fruit. And the first scene that we find is the scene in verses 12 through 14, where Jesus and the disciples are leaving Bethany and they're heading to Jerusalem. And here's what it said. It said, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree that was in leaf. In other words, it was beginning to bloom. He went to find out if it had any fruits. And when he reached it, he found that there was nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And Mark says, and his disciples heard him say it. And so Jesus is hungry, according to Mark. And as they're leaving in the morning, he's hungry and he sees a fig tree. But when he gets to the fig tree, he saw no figs on it. And and Mark says he cursed it, saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And as you read that, you might think, well, that's pretty harsh, right? Like, why would Jesus curse this fig tree? I mean, why did he take his anger out on this poor fig tree? What did the fig tree ever do to Jesus? And and then you add in the fact that Mark says that it wasn't even the season for figs. Like, it wasn't even the time for figs to bear, fig trees to bear fruits. And it seems really a bit out of character, for Jesus. And I think this is why biblical scholars have wrestled with this passage because it's just not in his character. As a matter of fact, it's the only time in the gospel where Jesus uses his miraculous powers to wound something rather than to heal it as he curses the fig tree. But what we do know is that Mark says that the fig tree was in leaf. Now, that's important because that's suggesting that it would have fruit, that any time a fig tree would be in leaf, it would be blooming, and that there would at least be little nubs. There'd be little fig nubs uh, uh, on the tree that you could actually eat. And so at least you would think that they would find those little nubs. But Jesus finds nothing. And so why does he curse the tree? Well, I don't think that Jesus was angry at the fig tree. Like, I don't think Jesus had something against fig newtons. I don't think he was anti-fig. I don't think that he was uh, trying to make a point about, I don't like figs and no one should. Um, But I think that this is the thing. I think that Jesus saw this fig tree as an opportunity for an object lesson for what was about to happen in the temple. That I think that Jesus knew what was about to take place in the temple. And so he's preparing the disciples saying, ah, here's a moment, here's an opportunity for me to share an object lesson with the disciples. So let's keep reading again and just see what happens because verses 15 through 19 tells a different story. Mark changes the story. He moves into a different part of the story. And it says, on reaching Jerusalem, so the 12 disciples, Jesus, they've traveled back from Bethany. They've reached Jerusalem and they enter the temple courts. And you got to understand the temple courts were huge. Like the temple courts were not small. They were big. They're massive. Lots of football field size. Uh, there was, there was uh, porches all in the temple. Anyone in the temple courts, anyone could go in the temple courts. Gentiles could go there. Jews could go there. Only Jews could go in the temple. But the temple courts were for anyone. And Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturns the tables of money changers and the the benches of those selling doves and sacrificial animals for the sacrifice. 
And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he, as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus quotes these Old Testament scriptures that everyone was listening would have been familiar with. And they knew that the Bible said that the temple was to be a house of prayer. And he knew that there was scripture that called it a den of robbers. The chief priests in verse 18 and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Like they're not excited about anything that Jesus is doing. They're threatened by his teaching. And so now they're looking for a way to kill him. Mark even says, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. They traveled back to Bethany. And now when we read the temple story, and when you and I read it, and when we preach about the temple story, you may have heard sermons about it. We tend to focus on the cleansing of the temple. We tend to focus on Jesus and his righteous anger and throwing tables upside down and getting angry at the, at the money changers. And the assumption in this story is that Jesus was, ang was, was angry that people were being exploited by selling doves and exchanging money in the temple. But if we walk away, if we walk away thinking that Jesus was trying to change the behavior of people in the temple, then we would miss this point. And it's a big point. And the point is this, that Jesus wasn't cleaning the temples as much as he was announcing prophetic judgment on it. You see, Jesus knows the future of the temple, and he's unleashing this prophetic judgment upon the temple. He knows that not only will the temple practices not change or be corrected, but he knows that the temple is going to be destroyed. And if you read in Matthew's account of the story in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 2, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attentions to its buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus said? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So Jesus tells the disciples, listen. I'm doing a new thing. The temple has not been fruitful. The temple has not lived up to its mission, and it's going to be destroyed. And then as Jesus is turning the tables in the temple courts, he's quoting a passage from Jeremiah chapter 7. And in this passage, Jeremiah is challenging the Israelites in the Old Testament. He's challenging them on their view of the temple because even back in the Old Testament, the Israelites didn't get it right. And the mindset was that the Israelites, uh, the mindset that Israelites had adopted was that the temple uh, and the sacrificial system of the temple covered all their sins. And that they were good when they gave their sacrifices, that they were good. And Jeremiah says this, he says in, verse, in chapter 7, he says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? And then... Sorry, I lost my place. Whoops, sorry. It's on the screen though, right? And then come and stand before me in the house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become, check this out, become a den of robbers? 
but I have been watching, declares the Lord. So the prophet Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's saying, listen, you all, you come to the temple, you do all these things, you continue to sin, and then you come and expect it to be, to be cleansed, and you hang out here, and, and you hang out here as a den of robbers looking for safety in my temple. And when Jeremiah uses the term den of robbers, he isn't saying that the temple is where the thief or the theft is taking place. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that the theft is taking place in the temple. He's saying it's the place where the robbers come to, to find a shield, to go and shield themselves from the consequences of their behavior. That the den is actually their refuge. The temple becomes their refuge. The whole sacrificial system was being used to remove guilt from actions that the Israelites had no intentions of changing, that they continue to sin and they say, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And they go and sin again and they come back, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And they keep doing this over and over again because they're abusing God's grace. And, and, and Jeremiah is God's voice saying, you got it wrong. And from the very beginning, Israel was created by God to be a city on a hill that would draw the nations to God, that it was his chosen people that he created to draw other people to God, to draw the world to God. But instead of turning the temple into a house of prayer for all nations, it had become a den of thieves. You see, the temple leadership, the temple and the temple leadership had failed miserably, and God was pronouncing judgment on the entire system. He's like, I'm done. I'm tired. How and how, and you wonder, how did the temple get to this point? Like, how did it happen? How did they get to this place where they're abusing God's grace? Well, I want to tell you, it didn't happen overnight. It happened one compromise at a time. And here at Warehouse Church, I want you to hear this. We don't have to set up money tables in the lobby to betray Jesus. Like, we don't have to do that. We just have to fail to welcome all people. We just have to fail to make it easy for folks to find Jesus. We just have to let our personal preferences for worship and our personal preferences for how we do church set the agenda and let God's word about loving one another become mere suggestions rather than holy commands. We just have to let our mission to see people experience transforming relationships through Jesus become a fancy slogan that we plaster on the wall rather than a way of life. See, that's what happened in the original temple is the Israelites just let it go away one compromise at a time. And so Jesus uses the fig tree to help the disciples to understand the significance of the temple cleansing. And like the fig tree... The temple's future isn't looking bright. Like Jesus curses the fig tree and then he curses the temple. And look at what happens ne the next morning in verse 20 and 21. It says this, Mark says, In the morning as they went along, they saw that fig tree, that same fig tree that was blooming yesterday, the same fig tree that had leaves on it, has now withered up and died from the roots. In other words, it is just like you sprayed a bunch of Roundup on it, and it is brown and crinkly and dying. And Peter remembered, and he said to the Lord, he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Like Peter's like amazed, look at this thing. Like you did that, Jesus, look at what you did. And the disciples see that it's dead. They see that it's dried up from the roots, and now, and now this isn't the first time. 
And, and, and if you don't understand, if you don't read the whole Bible, you'll miss this, but this isn't the first time that the Bible has used fig trees as a symbol for Israel and their lack of faithfulness and their lack of fruitfulness. So in Micah chapter 7, and we're going to look at a bunch of scripture this morning. So Micah chapter 7, here's what it says. Again, Micah, prophet, God, speaking through Micah, says, what misery is mine? God's like, I am miserable here. He says, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There's no grapes. There's no grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. No one, not one upright person remains. And so Micah, speaking on behalf of God, says there's no one righteous, like no one bearing fruit. There's no one that is sharing the fruit of God with other people. There's no grapes on the vines. There's no, there's no figs on the trees. Israel has become fruitless and faithless, and there is no one upright, not one person to be found. And the prophet Jeremiah, whom Jesus quotes as he cleanses the temple, has something else to say about God's coming judgment. In Jeremiah 8.13, he says, I, well, again, Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So God, again, cursing the Israelites for their lack of faithfulness and their lack of fruitfulness. And Jeremiah's words were being played out right here in the real fig tree. Like the disciples knew these prophecies. They knew Jeremiah and Micah, and they knew about the fig tree being connected to the Israelites. And here is this dead fig tree, and it's all being played out right in front of them. And the nation of Israel was dying too on the vine. And as Jesus came to open God up to anyone and everyone who would come to him. Jesus is like, I've come to do something new. It's no longer about the Israelites. They're no longer the chosen people. God is available to anyone and everyone. Salvation is open to all people. And after the cleansing of the temple, the Pharisees, if you read on, the Pharisees challenged Jesus, and they challenged his authority. And I love this. Jesus tells this story about a parable called the parable of the tenants in Mark 12. And in the parable, Israel is represented again by a vineyard. Israel is represented by a vineyard, which is being poorly cared for by its tenants, the Israelites. And after beating and abusing the landowner's servants, because the landowner sends the servants, and they beat them up, and they send them packing that's the, the symbol of the prophets. And then the Landover sends his own son, his heir, which represents Jesus. And the tenants choose to kill him. And the crux of Jesus' parable lies in these words that Matthew tells in Matthew 21, 43. And it says this, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Israelites, and given to a people who will produce its fruits. Israel isn't bearing fruit. Israel is being faithless. And so God takes it away and gives it to people who will produce its fruits. And again, this reinforces the fig tree message that God expects the trees he plants to bear fruits. And the expectation of fruitfulness, guess what? It's not limited to Israel. Jesus expects his followers to bear fruits. 
As a matter of fact, I'd write this down that Jesus expects you and expects me to bear fruit. And he explains this in one of his final conversations with the disciples before, he, before his death on the cross in John's account or John's gospel. He says this in John 15, 1 through 4. He says, I am the vine and my father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. That's so important. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So here Jesus Jesus' followers are the fruit-bearing branches. And as we stay connected to Jesus, we stay connected to the vine, we're empowered to produce fruit, something that Jesus says we can't do on our own. We can't bear the fruit of the Spirit on our own. We can only do it when we stay connected with Jesus. Meanwhile, John says that while um, the Father is at work in the background and he's pruning us, so that we can become even more fruitful. Like Jesus doesn't just want us to bear fruit once, he wants us to be fruitful. And so the Father's in the background pruning so that we can become more fruitful. And the very fact that God puts so much energy into increasing our fruitfulness, I think it really drives home the point and the importance of being fruitful. Like Jesus wants us to bear fruit. And he doesn't stop there. He continues on in John 15, verses 5 through 8. He says, again, I am the vine, you are the branches. If, if, everybody say if. Yeah. It's a big, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. If you remain in Jesus, stay connected, stay close to Jesus, and he remains in you, you will bear much fruit. And then Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no fruit being bared or born in your life apart from Jesus. And if you don't remain in me, it says you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. And whatever you wish, it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory. This is to my Father's glory. Check it out. That you bear much fruit. Warehouse Church, Jesus wants you to bear much fruit. Why? Showing yourselves to be my disciples. You see, you must be connected to Jesus to bear fruit. I want you to hear that. We must be connected to Jesus to bear fruit. Jesus tells us how important it is for us to remain attached to him so that we can bear much fruit, so that we don't end up like the fig tree, so that we don't end up like the temple courts. And then he restates the lesson of the fig trees by telling us that branches that can't produce fruit are thrown away. In the end, fruitfulness is essential because that is how we show that we are genuine followers of Jesus. We show others and each other how genuine we are as followers of Jesus by our fruit. Now, after the disciples noticed the fig tree, Peter says, Jesus, look, the fig tree, it's dead. After he notices that, and that Jesus, the fig tree that Jesus cursed, 
has withered, Jesus tells them this in verses 22 through 25. He says, have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that, that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. So after pointing out that the tree has withered and died, Jesus tells the disciples how to be fruitful. Jesus tells the disciples how to bear much fruit. And he gives them three things. The first thing he says is that you've got to have an outrageous faith. That you have to believe that God can do big things. You've got to have this outrageous faith. Then he says the second thing is you've got to pray bold prayers. You've got to believe in what you're praying. And you've got to believe that God's going to respond to your prayers. And then the third thing he tells them is you've got to practice radical forgiveness. He says, listen, if you're holding something against someone, before you go any further, you've got to practice radical forgiveness and forgive them as the Father has forgiven you. He says, and by doing this, if you'll do these things, he says, you'll remain connected to the vine and you will bear much fruit. So let me just ask you something. How would your life be different how would your life be different if you lived out these three things that Jesus shared with the disciples of how to live a life that bears fruit? Do you believe that God is bigger than your biggest struggle right now? Like, do you believe God is bigger than the habit that you are stuck in? Do you believe that God is bigger than the mess that you may find yourself in? Do you believe that God is bigger than your biggest struggle? Do you believe that he has a plan and a purpose for your life? Do you have a faith that as the Bible says that can move mountains? Not that you can move mountains, but that God, you believe that God can move the mountains in your life. And that's this, are you praying bold prayers? Are you praying bold prayers? I mean, are your prayers just wimpy, like, God, help me, help me, help me, save me, save me, save me, rescue me, rescue me, rescue me? Are you praying bold prayers? Prayers that are big and audacious, prayers that only God can do in your life and the lives of people around you. Are you praying for God to heal? Are you praying for God to move mountains in your life? Are you praying for God to help you overcome the obstacles and break down barriers in your life? Are you praying bold prayers? And the third thing is this, knowing that people aren't perfect, knowing that nobody's perfect, are you practicing radical forgiveness by forgiving others that hurt you? And as Jesus said, turning the other cheek and forgiving those who don't deserve to be forgiven because that's what Jesus did for you. Do you have a, an outrageous faith? Are you praying bold prayers? Are you practicing radical forgiveness? 
because here's what I know that you have been created to bear fruit. You have. You have been created to bear fruit. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And so Jesus would say, I know how good a tree is by its fruit. So let me just ask you, church, what kind of fruit is hanging from your tree? To bear more fruits, you must stay connected to Jesus. And the way that you stay connected to Jesus is by having an outrageous faith, by having bold prayers, saying bold prayers, and by forgiving people in radical and crazy ways. I think Jesus knew that if we can do those three things, we will bear much fruit. I pray that Warehouse Church would bear a ton of fruit. So much fruit that people would be like, man, that fruit looks good. I'm going to go there. I want some of that. That looks so perfect. That looks so inviting. That looks so satisfying. I want some of that fruit. remain in Jesus and he will remain in you. You will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this really challenging scripture. Lord, as we think about the you cursing a fig tree and wondering what did the fig tree ever do to you and then understanding the bigger picture that that was just an object lesson to help us to understand why you went through the temple and did the things that you did because the temple wasn't bearing fruit it had dried up it wasn't remaining in you and Lord I know that there are churches all across America that aren't bearing fruit and they're drying up but Lord we don't want to be that kind of church at Warehouse Church Father we want to be a church filled with fruit bearing followers of you God, a church that is bearing the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, Lord. God, may we stay connected to you. May we have an outrageous faith. May we pray bold prayers. May we radically forgive people so that we might bear fruit. Because here's the deal, the world needs to see some fruit in us. Fruit that entices them, fruit that makes them hunger for you, fruit that makes their mouths water to be in your presence. God, may we bear that kind of fruit. sing this last song and uh, we worship one last time together in, in song 
I just invite you if you want to come and spend some time in prayer, come come forward, spend time in the altar area before the cross. Maybe maybe you're recognizing, you know what? There's not a whole lot of fruit going on in my life. Maybe you just want to come and say, God, help me produce some fruit in my life. Maybe there's like that person that you've been holding a grudge against. You're like, man, I haven't been practicing radical forgiveness. I need to forgive them. Come and forgive them. Don't let that unforgiveness hold you back from bearing fruit. Or maybe you just want to come and celebrate the fruit that God's producing in your life for the lives of other people. Whatever it is, you come, spend time before the Lord, and uh, and let's all stand together and let's sing this out.